Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and in your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make you your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the, their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh, at the time that the Canaanites were in the land. When the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going toward Negev. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful God, we give you thanks for your word, your word which cuts to the core of who we are. I pray that you would use your word to be a light to our path, that you would encourage us and strengthen us by the power of your spirit working in and through this word this morning, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You know, uh, one of the really interesting cultural phenomenons that, that that really came to, I think, a peak during 2020 and uh, the height of COVID years uh, was cancel culture. And uh, it, uh, cancel culture is one of those things that's really easy to pick on, so I'm definitely picking the low-hanging fruit here. Um, but, you know, in cancel culture, if, if you did something that upset it, whatever that was popular opinion by this group of people, they would shut you off, right? They would, they would cancel you. And not only... 
if you said something wrong or did something wrong to upset those people recently, but they would even look at your past. Like even if you did something wrong in your high school days, people would say, well, we can't be your friend anymore, which is crazy. You don't want to see some of the stuff I did in my high school days. You might not want me as your friend if you knew some of those things. Um, but it wasn't just like people that were living today that they canceled, but even historical figures, even some of our historical figures that we would say um, uh, are our heroes. Um, like if they discovered any hero that had an unforgivable sin in the past, they were gone too. Even heroes such as Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses S. Grant, have had statues torn down in Portland and San Francisco. Um, and you know, one of the, the great ironies, I think, about this cancel culture is the fact that if the mob was being honest with themselves, they'd have to cancel themselves too. Because no one actually lives up to their own ideals. That includes all of us in this room. No matter what your ideal is for life, um, you can't actually live up to it. You're going to fall short of it. And this is kind of this, this humans have this rare ability um, to, to be creatures filled with great glory, right? We have so much capacity for good. And also, we have this rare ability to be uh, creatures of ruin with profound capacity for evil. Uh, and it's even, even in, in spite of that, it seems that the bad part of our capacity always shocks us a little bit. It's like, really? Could we really be that bad? And, you know, in these opening chapters of Genesis, when we start in Genesis 1, you, you actually see this, these two parts of humanity play out quite early. Adam and Eve, with this profound capacity to create, being made in the image of God and put in the garden to expand this temple garden until God's presence filled the earth, until the Garden of Eden covered the world. Glory but also given an opportunity to, to disobey the Lord, the temptation of the serpent, they get cast out of the garden, bringing sin into the world, bringing de destruction, ruin, right? Uh, and as humanity goes out into the, into the wilderness, the first story out of the garden is brother murdering brother, and it kind of erupts into chaos until you get to the time of uh, Noah, when humanity got so bad, God's like, listen, we're going to wipe everything out. And we're going to start over with Noah and his family. And Noah, the story, this, this man of profound faith that the Lord would go to him and say, hey, build this boat, bring these animals on. He's like, sure, I'll do, I'll do that. They didn't have boats back then. He's building this thing um, out of faith, gathering these animals, looked like a crazy person. Um, and he survived the flood, amazing, makes his covenant with the Lord right after the, they get out of the ark. And then what does he do? Plants grapes, waits three years, makes wine, gets super drunk and passes out. His great capacity for glory and faith, but also this profound capacity for ruin, for disaster. And uh, we are both image bearers of the Lord glory, right? We represent that glory, but we are also offspring of Adam. We each have the capacity of, of sin inside of us that we can't always say no to. And, you know, this morning, I think we have a similar pattern happening, emerging with Abraham. Abraham, the, the father of our, our faith. Abraham, who, you know, over half the world's population traces their religious roots back to Abraham. Between Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Abraham's their man, the man of faith, great man, glorious man. The, the, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard would say that he's the greatest man um, that, that ever lived. 
Um, Greatest faith. His is a kind of faith we, we strive after. We also find in these stories of Abraham, he also had incredible capacity for wickedness, too, for selfishness. The, the truth is we're all a mixture of this glory and ruin. And while it's easy to, to mock the, the, the cancel culture temptations for their inability to, to see this, I think everyone in this room struggles to see this at times, too. Uh, we have this instinct to cancel people and uh, get people who do wrong, even in the church. We struggle to see that we live in a fallen world and every aspect of life is a mixture of good and bad. So whether good happens from your neighbor or bad happens from your neighbor, even in this pew, it should not shock us when that happens. Um, from the companies that make our clothing to the people that sit next to you from the institution that is the church, um, people's capacity for bad is everywhere. And yet it can still surprise us. Because this life that we live is a messy endeavor. This life on this side of eternity and canceling everyone that offends you will not solve this problem because eventually you have to cancel yourself if you're honest. So how do we, how do we live in this messy middle place that we're in in this time of the, the church? How do we survive our own capacity for good and evil? What do we do with these things? Well, in this story of Abraham, when he first comes onto the scene and just for context, I know that in the text, his name here is Abram and it's Sarai. But eventually, spoiler alert, he becomes Abraham, she becomes Sarah. It's just easier if I just call him Abraham and Sarah. So that's what I'm going to do. So just, I know, whatever. But in this first story of Abraham, this is where the, the, the scene changes. Genesis 1 through 11, God is dealing with humanity as a whole. Just dealing with them as a people as a whole. And then in Genesis 12, the, there's this great shift where now he, he deals with, with Abraham, this one family that becomes a nation of Israel. And through him, he's going to bring his promises um, to light. And uh, from dealing with everybody to dealing with one people. And in this story, I think we're going to find our answer to what does it look like to live with the capacity for good and evil. Because as we look at the glory and ruin of Abraham, I think we're going to discover our own glory and ruin. And in this, I think ultimately what we're going to see is the great faithfulness of God. So there's, there's three ways we're going to look at this uh, this morning as we discover the answer to these questions. And the first is this, that our glory is our faith. Our glory is our faith. You know, the first part of Genesis 12 showcases a profound amount of faith from Abraham. Just a little quick background on Abraham. You know, the place where his family was living at the time of his call was actually known for their moon worship. Uh, their family tree that's kind of traced throughout the, the first bit of Genesis is a, is a messy family tree. Um, the, the paragraph above the section I read kind of mentions Abraham's family, and it mentions that Abraham's wife is barren, so his wife is unable to have, have children. Um, it doesn't seem like there's anything special or even commendable about Abraham. He's just a dude living with his life in a land of pagan worship. Probably struggled with his morning devotions like many of us do. It could be any of us. So for hopefully minus the moon worship, hopefully no one here does any of that. If you do, talk to me. I want to talk to you about that. Um, but without warning, it seems, verse 1 happens. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. You know, when stuff like this happens, I always wonder, what are they, what are they thinking? Like, what's the, 
What's the commentator's view of like Abraham? What is, what is going through his mind when this voice comes to him? Um, because God is asking him to do something insane. He's saying, leave everything that you know, everything that defines you for the unknown. Leave everything that you can see is true about you for this thing that I'm going to promise to you that, you're not, that you can't actually see and that he never actually fully realizes in his life. Listen, the, the list here, leave your country. Your country is your place of comfort. It's your land. If you've ever been a, away from your country, your home, you eventually get homesick, right? Um, it's, it's your place of comfort and identity. He's saying, leave that. Um, and he says, leave your kindred, your family, your, your friends, all your people that make up who you are. Leave them too. And he says, oh yeah, your father's house. Yeah, leave that too. And this time, I said, you were defined by your father's name. Uh, his name defines you. And uh, you see this in the, all the lineages that are listed. So-and-so fathered so-and-so who fathered so-and-so. God is saying, leave that. Leave your status behind. Leave everything that makes you you. Everything that you define yourself as you. Leave all of that. Um, which kind of gives us a hint of what the first step of what faith is. Faith is leaving everything that defines you behind for something else. The question is, for what? Well, we get the answer to that in verse 2. This is what he's leaving behind all of that for this. Well, starting at the end of, um, starting at the end of verse 1, he says, And your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is kind of the beginning of this amazing sequence of the promises of God. Listen to the weight of the words here. He says, I will, I will. I will do these things. And what is he promising? I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you land. I'm gonna make you a great nation, a great name. I'm gonna make you a blessing. Listen, this is not a laundry list of things for, for Abraham to do. The dominant tone here is the promises of God. All the things that he has promised that he will accomplish through Abraham. This is what faith is. Faith is leaving your life and trusting in the promises of God. He's saying he's going to leave his land. He's, he's going to get a greater land, right? He's going to leave his nation. He will be made into a greater nation. He's going to leave his name. He will be given a greater name. Faith is stepping out in, in, in life, trusting that those promises are actually true. Leaving behind one world for another. The promise here is that ultimately that God will build his kingdom on earth. His plans from Genesis 1 have not changed despite everything that's happened from there till now. He will bring about a seed that he promised in Genesis 3 to end the reign of sin. And he will do it through Abraham and his family. Which remember, up until this point, all we know is Sarah is unable to have children. This is not an easy promise for Abraham to believe. Uh, and I think this is one of the hard things about God's promises for us. They're almost too good for us to believe. That sin will be no more. That there'll be no more tears. No more sadness. Uh, no more disease. No more funerals. I mean, everyone in this room wants that. Everyone in the world wants that. But it's so distant, like many of God's promises can feel. It feels impossible to believe. This is what Abraham is having to believe here if he's going to step out in faith. Um, faith requires you to step out into something that is unknown. 
Uh, faith can be defined here by leaving your life, trusting in this future life that God has promised you, even though it hasn't fully come to pass yet. And in verse 4, we find out what Abraham does with this call. Does he listen? Does he step out of faith? Verse 4, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Seems so simple, doesn't it? He's like, yeah, he's just like, sure, I guess I have nothing, nothing better to do. Might as well listen to this voice that came to me. The crazy thing is he doesn't know where he is going. He's, he's just, he's wandering. Um, and I think everyone can relate to that aspect of faith. It's, a lot of times our faith is walking in the dark sometimes, isn't it? His faith is admirable. Uh, it's a faith that we ought to look to as our model. I mean, who knows? Maybe he's heard some of the stories of the Lord. Maybe he's heard some of the stories of the flood that have been passed down to generations. We don't really know. But I do know this. The, the, the person that goes first is always the most brave. Like, if we're going to go cliff jumping in a place, you want to see somebody else jump off that cliff and survive before you go jump off that cliff, right? You want to make sure, hey, is the water deep enough? Are they breaking their legs? You know, where did they land exactly? Because that's exactly where I'm going to land. Uh, well, Abraham goes first. Uh, and he shows us, as he goes first, that as he trusted the promises of God, so we can follow him and trust the promises of God, even when we don't know what's before us, even when the promises are not yet made manifest. Faith is always lived out in the world. And when you're called to faith, you're called to a life of living out that faith in the world. This is the glory of Abraham. It isn't his goodness that makes him glorious. Listen, Abraham is not necessarily a good man. Uh, we're about to find out. I already read it, so I'll spoil, I'll spoil it. He sells his, basically sells his wife to another man for fear of his own life. He, he does it again uh, in chapter 20 of Genesis. He also ends up getting his servant pregnant because he needed an heir and he didn't trust God to bring that heir to his wife. If any of us did that, you would say, is that a good person? You'd probably be like, nah, not really a good person. I don't know that we could call Abraham a good person. That's not what made him admirable. Uh, it is his faith in the promises of God. That is his glory. And we see this, this further happening as he actually lives this faith out. He doesn't just begin the journey, but he continues his journey. In verse 5 to 6, you see him doing this. And Abraham took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moriah, and at that time that the Canaanites were in the land. To give you a, a picture of the significance of what's happening is Abraham and his wife and his nephew Lot end up kind of coming into the promised land, coming up and walking down the whole promised land from the north um, to the south, where eventually they'll hit the little land bridge uh, into, into Egypt. Um, and it's as they're kind of walking through that land of Canaanite that the Lord appears to him. This is one of the things we call a theophany. Theophany is a fancy word for when God uh, appears, like Theo, God, um, Epiphany. So God appears to his people. Likely, um, it's the person of Christ who's actually appearing to them, which is kind of cool to think about. Um, which these theophanies happened to, to the patriarchs. Um, and every time a theophany happened um, for the people, where God actually said, here I am, and spoke to the people, they built an altar um, to commemorate this, this moment. So, so God appears to Abraham and says, this is the land I'm going to give you. 
You know, what's interesting is this very spot actually comes up a few other times in Scripture, uh, and it becomes a very contentious spot throughout Israel's history. Um, you know, this low oak of Moray that's mentioned here is likely uh, a religious spot for pagan gods. So it's likely a place of, of worship. And it's here that Abraham actually makes his, makes his claim for God. He plants his flag in the ground, which is what altars are in a way. Nations were defined by their worship. You could argue that they still are. It's not their flag that defines them. It's their worship that defines them. And so building an altar here was, was Abraham making a claim on this land. And this, this land is ours. It belongs to Yahweh and his children. I mean, notice the, how unafraid he is. It says the Canaanites were there. So there's other people there. People probably don't like him marching through with his you know, band of people and belongings and building altars to foreign gods. I don't think they like that. But he's un- unafraid. Uh, this may be a bit in a, of an exaggeration, but just to kind of give you an idea of what I think is happening here, at least, is it's like planting an American flag in the heart of Moscow, Russia. It won't go well for you, right? His faith in God made him so glorious that he was willing to step out in faith uh, and claim this land for the Lord because he had said it's his. His faith transformed him and made him into a hero. He was fearless. You know, another aspect that I think even gives us a little bit more depth of what's happening even here is remember the original audience of the book of Genesis, right? Moses wrote this for the Israelites before they went into the promised land for the first time. Um, You know, this is the people who had been in Egypt and uh, through the Exodus, the Lord takes them out of Egypt. Uh, This great Exodus story, they've been wandering in the desert. There were people who had faith in God, but struggled with it as well. And I think there could be a question in their minds um, of, is God going to finish the job that he started with us, his people? Will we ever see his great promises to us of this land flowing with milk and honey? Will we actually see that come true? Or God delivered us from Exodus. Thank you, Lord. But will we see this too to the end or will we be desert wanderers the rest of our lives? I think this is a question we often ask in the midst of our struggles. We have faith in God. You might say, I follow him. But sometimes in following him, things actually get worse. Is God, is God going to see you through? Is God going to see me through? Is God going to see us through? Are his promises actually going to hold against the weight of the world? So think of how these people might be hearing this story. They are the fruits of these promises here. Right? This nation that he's talking about here, that's them. It's speaking about them. Uh, They are the fruits of this promise. They are the nation that has become mighty. From a barren woman and an old man, they have come into existence. It's actually amazing. should be greatly encouraging. God is the God who keeps his promises, even to old men and their barren wives. Abraham's faith should embolden their own. I imagine they were also greatly encouraged. Listen to this, because Abraham's pathway through the land uh, is going to mirror their own pathway through the land. Marching through it fearlessly. Even this place called I, which I like to call AI, um, artificial intelligence, it's a, anyways, whatever. Um, even this place called I uh, uh, is, is a word that means uh, ruin. Um, and it's foreshadowing Joshua 8 when Joshua leads the people in and he actually destroys that town. 
So Abraham is marching through the land unafraid, unharmed, setting up altars, planting the flare that they are about to take up for themselves. They are the fruit of Abraham's labors, of Abraham's faith. The long promised land is about to be theirs. It's like saying, have faith because Abraham had faith and went before you. Your glory is not in your goodness, it's in your faith. Living according to the promises of God, trusting them even in the midst of the desert times of life. This is what makes us glorious too. When God's people did this throughout time, in scripture times, in church history, today when God's people do this, when we live according to the promises of God, we are a force to behold. Think about even like when they came into this land, you know, around Jericho, they're marching around the city singing songs. That is a nutty thing to do unless you trust in the promises of God. And when they did, it's glorious and they claim the city and they claim the land, running fearless into battle. God is committed to his promises to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven and he does it through us. And when we walk in faith, we are glorious. Not because of our goodness, but because of the one that we have faith in. And I wish I could tell you the story of Abraham ends there, but it doesn't. Um, and it's actually good for us that it doesn't, because uh, this isn't how we experience all of life either. Um, it can be easy to think, man, Abraham, what a great dude, unshakable faith. Um, but that's not the story we're in. So first, we, f- we see right our, uh, uh, our glory is our faith. And second, we see that our ruin is our fear. Our ruin is our fear. You know, the, the second part of Abraham's story is the flip side of faith, which we find the flip side of faith is fear. It's maybe not what you'd expect. When I, if I asked you, if you're having a conversation, I said, hey, what's the opposite of faith? You'd likely say doubt, and that's a, that's a really good answer. Um, but uh, doubt leads you to something. If you doubt the promises of God, it leads you into fear, where you fear that the promises of God won't hold. And, I, and it's ultimately, it's Abraham's fear that leads him uh, into his ruinous actions. We see this in, in verse 10. It says, now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So at this kind of first sign of, of turbulence, of famine, Abraham leaves the land that was promised to his offspring uh, and goes to a, to a different land. And you know, one of the things that's most noteworthy about this is that there's no indication that he asked God for counsel to know if this is the right thing to do. I mean, it seems like a sensible thing, but maybe it wasn't the right thing. First sign of hardship, he's out. Um, even though that this is the land that God has promised him, he leaves it. And it is possible it was fine for him to go to Egypt. Maybe I'm reading into it, but the way the rest of the story go causes me to think that I'm right in questioning his motives for going to Egypt. It seems as if his motivation is out of fear. Look at what happens in verse 11. To 12, it says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Just a, just a quick aside for some marriage advice. Men in the room, never do that if you're in that situation. Just don't do that. Um, but think about this. Abraham just marched to the land of Canaan, unafraid, planting flags for the Lord, building altars. 
And now all of a sudden, he's afraid for his life. This seemingly rock-hard faith has turned into this mushy fear. All of a sudden, those promises of God that were so strong for him, that, it, that pushed him in life, feel distant. I mean, this is also stunning because of one of the things that God promised him in verse 3 was this, that I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who cursed you. So he was covered by God's promises, but gripped by fear, that promise all of a sudden got real distant for him. Also, there's no indication that this fear is even warranted uh, in the text. I mean, he just walked through Canaan untouched and no one sought after his wife. There's no indication that this would have actually happened to him there. And yet, you know what happens when fear grips your mind and you start to kind of unfold and the fear monster happens and then all of a sudden everyone around you is going to die in the next two minutes of a brain aneurysm, right? That's just how fear works. It just unravels in our head. Um, you know, most men would do anything to protect their wife and their children. Anything. And yet his fear is so strong. His fear has gripped him so much that he is willing to give up even his wife. The very source of the future nation that he's promised is now in jeopardy. He's willing to put everything in jeopardy because he is gripped by fear. Look what happens here in verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt and the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. So functionally, what we find is it plays out the way Abraham had planned. He, I think, he sells his wife into this adulterous relationship with Pharaoh. This list in verse 16 tells us what he received for this. It's like a bride's price. Now, to be fair to Abraham for a second, in chapter 20, we do learn that Sarah is his half-sister. So he's telling this, you know, half-truth. But even in there, he gets mocked for thinking that he's telling the truth by saying to somebody, oh yeah, it's just my sister. Because by implication, he's saying, it's not my wife. He is not being led by honesty or faith here. He's being led by fear. His faith that was so strong a moment ago is reduced to ashes in the face of the first adversity he experiences. His ruin is his fear. And I think the original audience can relate to this because they are a heritage of a people who left Egypt. And as soon as they left Egypt, they, they marched on dry ground across the sea. Amazing manna from heaven feeding them. Pretty cool. I think if that happened to us, our faith would probably be pretty strong in that moment. That's pretty sweet. Saves on my grocery bill too. Um, also really nice. But as, as soon as that happens, thanks David. As soon as that happens, what do they do? They start complaining. This old manna again, Lord. Uh, we had it better off in Egypt as slaves. They can relate to this faith that gets turned into fear and ruin. And I think you and I can relate too. We step out in faith to trust God. That first step of faith that you make to say, I believe. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. We've got a hold of his amazing promises to redeem us as people, to forgive us our sins. We hold on to this promise of this future inheritance, but when the storms of life come, our faith can shrink and the promises of God can feel distant for us. It can be any number of things, unexpected deaths, bad health diagnosis, 
the big things, but also just the day-to-day struggles we have in life, the day-to-day humdrum life of doing the same things over and over again, lacking meaning, broken relationships, struggling with work, marriage issues that don't get better, parenting struggles. In those moments, when life is overwhelming, God's promises to us, his promises to all of us suddenly don't feel real anymore. Will he really do the things? Will he really actually help me overcome sin? Is he really holding this beautiful inheritance that's worth waiting for? Will he really establish his kingdom on earth? Will he really rule with power and might, vanquishing the power of the devil? Will he do these things? Can he really uh, repair broken relationships? After wrestling with all these things, fear can come in. And when the fear settles in, sometimes our animal instincts kick in and survival mode where we do whatever we have to do to survive from self-medication to withholding forgiveness from others. We can put our trust in our worldly wealth to solve our promises. Our fear leads to our ruin. And the reality is we are all a mix, aren't we, of glory and ruin. What do we do with this truth? That we aren't as good as we think we are and we're way worse than we think we are. It can be uncomfortable for us to be honest about. We like to look at our glory in the mirror. We don't like to look at the other parts. You know, we stand just right so we don't see them, right? Well, we're black, right, because it's slimming. The question is this. Uh, what will God do when he sees those parts of us? Confronted with our weak and frail faith, which he can actually see even if you try to hide it, what does he do with it? Um, If the most commendable of us in the history of God's people is Abraham and his faith, which the New Testament commends us to time and time again, if he can't even do it, if King David can't do it, right, the greatest king that we've ever seen, a man after God's own heart, what hope do any of us have to follow him? Um, What hope do do we have? And this is the third and final thing that we see here, and it's where our hope is, and it's that the glory of Christ is restores our ruins. The glory of Christ restores our ruins. Look with me here at verse 17. We see how the Lord responds to this whole scene. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abraham and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say that she is your sister? So I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. I love these sentences that begin with, but the Lord, the Lord is not easily defeated. He will do whatever it takes to bring his promises on earth. So here, he curses Pharaoh with a plague, which obviously kind of gives us some foreshadowing to that exodus. Uh, He he curses Pharaoh with a a plague and gets them deported from the land, also kind of mimicking this exodus story here, even in Genesis. He does all this to get Abraham back on track. Like it took a plague and a forced deportation to get Abraham back on track. Uh, God keeps his promises. He will not let our fear win in the end. He takes our ruins and he rebuilds and creates temples out of them. Despite it all, the Lord is there, fulfilling his purpose in us and through us. And look at Abraham here at the end. It seems uh, as if he's left with more than what he came with. Right? And Pharaoh gave him uh, orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. The amazing thing is God still actually blessed him in the midst of this moment of ruin. 
I, I think we love to punish ourselves and we get caught in our sin. We think if we just felt bad enough about it, if we just punish ourselves enough, then we can feel right and then walk in grace. But the truth is we can never do that enough. God, and God blesses us even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of our walking in fear. It is his perfect love which pursues us and casts out fear. His love, his promises never waver for his children. Never, ever, ever waver for his children. They're sure. No matter how far they stray, no matter how much they give into fear, the promises of God are sure they will hold. They, they will pursue you and bring you back no matter what it takes. Even if it takes a plague and a deportation to get you, he will get you. The story of scripture is one big story about God, this great promise keeper, this great covenant keeper, which, who despite our covenant breaking, he never runs from us. How can I be sure about this, that what I'm saying is true? Because of what happened to Abraham and what happened to everybody else following. This won't be their first detour. This is not their first rodeo. This is not their first struggle with faith. Though, And through this, God is telling them, listen, in the Israelites, and he's telling us that the strength of our faith that keeps us going, the glory of our faith is not our faith alone. Right? The glory of our faith can't hold us, nor can the ruins of our fear remove us from God's family. It isn't our goodness that makes us lovable. It's God's promises for us, his children. God is committed to his promises to you and his people because he's committed to his promise to the world, right? This promise isn't just for you and me and our own families, but God says he's gonna bless the world through Abraham and Sarah. He's gonna finish what he started in Genesis one and two through this family. God's promises are so strong that despite all the waywardness of Abraham and his descendants and even us, they could not stop the glory of Christ from making good on these promises. Because who is Jesus? Jesus is the long-promised seed of, of Eve to come and crush the head of the serpent. This long-promised seed that actually comes through this nation of Israel, through Abraham and his barren wife, Sarah. Jesus himself, who as he lived in this land, was exiled to Egypt before he returned. And he comes back to fulfill all the promises of God. And in Christ, Abraham has made a great nation. Because now you and I are all actually united in faith to Abraham, part of this family. Uh, we're made a great nation and, and now we're united to him by faith. Jesus says, I will, God said to Abraham, I will give you a land. And now in Christ, all creation is that land. His kingdom is expanding and he has come to fulfill his promise to Eve. He has come to crush the head of the serpent as he takes the, the serpent's most powerful weapon, right, death itself, and turns it into a means of life. This is what Jesus does. He turns... Ruin to glory, death to life, death to resurrection, right? Jesus is, is most glorious, not as this precious little baby right in the manger, but as a failed rebel hanging on a cross. That is his glory. This is what Jesus does. He's in the business of taking our ruins, our places of our greatest fears, anxieties, failures, and turning those moments into monuments of glory. This is what Jesus does. It's the glory of Christ that restores us. And you know, in the, in the world, there, there's little hope for restoration for you. When you, when you go against whatever the, the common thing is and you get cast out, there's no, no chance for a return. But in Christ, 
There is restoration. In Christ, Jesus says, listen, come to me. I will make you clean. Our glory is found in Christ. And not even our fear or our doubts of God's promises can withhold this glory from us. Because as we have faith in Christ, the great rebuilder of ruins, we learn to walk and trust in that faith. He gives us his spirit to be able to grow in in walking in that faith. We're always going to struggle. We're always going to be a mix of glory and ruin. But we learn to trust the promises more and more as we walk in faith in this life. And as we see the Lord turning the different parts of our lives from ruin to glory. And the the longer you live, hopefully the longer you experience those various moments. And they they actually become these theophanies of life, these places of of momentous occasion. You remember that, that time when God took this thing that was ruinous and he actually made it a place of glory. And our relationships and overcoming sin struggles that we thought were impossible in so many different ways. This is what the Lord is doing in our life. To walk according to this faith is to trust that God will finish the job of faith in your life. It's not this straight line. It's this ebb and flow And nothing can keep you from him finishing this work because even our faith depends on him and his strength because even your faith is a gift from him. And sure, we grow this gift as we study his promises, as we learn to trust in in them in all of life, but it's his strength that holds us. It's his promises that teach us that he will finish the work of faith in our life. Jesus is singularly committed to this task. Why is he committed to this? Because you, friends, are his glory. Amen. Pray with me. Holy God, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for these stories to help us know that we're not alone in our failure. We're not alone in our glory either as you come to make us glorious with you. May we hold on to the great promises of God, when things seem bleak, may you put eternity in our hearts and in our minds that we might hope and long and wait for that beloved day when sin and darkness will be no more. Lord, haste that day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.